everyone, and welcome to Brunch and Learn. I'm your host, Nicole Dillon, and this is a podcast for women who love to brunch, like myself. Here, we talk about two of my favorite topics, brunch, obviously, and the idea that we can learn something new every day. Each episode will interview a new female powerhouse, gab as though we're girlfriends at brunch, and learn something for our brains. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Brunch and Learn podcast, the podcast where we talk about brunch, but that is later in the episode, and learning something for our brains. And today on the podcast, we have Elaine Chang. She is the CEO and co-founder of Solo, a social people discovery app that brings people together through hospitality experiences. With a background in VC, law, and hospitality, she's driven to build micro-communities in niche verticals. She's equal parts a supper club host. She's an aspiring consumer psychologist, a hospitality enthusiast, and when she's not hosting her solo dinners, you can find her in New York City or in her hometown of LA. So welcome to the podcast, Celine. Thank you so much. So great to be here. So how about we kick things right off? I know I just, just gave a whole spiel about you, but what else can we learn about you? Who you are? What's your business? What are you working on? Tell us about you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you pretty much summed it up. You did a great job with the bio, but essentially my background is in VC and hospitality. I've been a lover of the startup ecosystem and either funding or building interesting companies over the course of my career. I find that hospitality is the heart of what I love. You know, it's where my passion is built because I am so, I think, deeply grateful to have started my career working for a restaurant group early on in Los Angeles and understanding the heart and the passion of what goes into creating connective food experiences. And so now, you know, in my beginning of my career, starting off in food and having gone through different learning experiences with business, with investing and within law, I'm really excited to bring a product to market that can help bring people together for through a community of supper club experiences. Definitely. And that is what we're learning today with you. A little bit about VC, your entrepreneurship journey. We're going to get into it, but the loneliness pandemic and more connection. Uh, I like that we're on that same, that same wavelength of that's what Women Who Brunch is all about, connecting people over food. And I love that you're in the same Connection is one of humanity's most fundamental and basic needs, right? And I I think that cross-culture, no matter what you ascribe to or belong to, food has always been a part of, a deeply ingrained part of culture. So to say that, you know, the, the things we love about food and the connective properties of it are just deeply rooted. It's it's a part of humanity. It's not just whether or not you're a foodie. Can you tell us a little bit of more about because so for the listeners out there a little bit more about solo the app absolutely so we started off as a supper club this was actually about two years ago when i was in dc for law school and uh, admittedly so i didn't want to hang out with law school friends all day you know i needed a little bit break from that and i had this idea as i was building a thesis for an investment fund i was talking to where i said 
community is the heart of all consumer businesses. And you see a lot of direct-to-consumer brands talk about telling this story and building community of, or a cult following of customers who are really invested in the relationship. And I thought more about what that meant to me, right? And to me, community through food was something that was a no-brainer. You know, having an Asian American heritage and growing up in Los Angeles, I think both of those communities were very deeply rooted in wanting to be connected over food. So I pitched a, a chef in DC, his name is Chef Eric Bruner Yang. And I was expecting him to say no when I proposed to him a 30 person supper club. I said, hey, would you give me your restaurant space on a Tuesday night, most quiet night that you have, and let's see if we can do a family style dinner for 30 strangers. And I expected him to say no, and I braced myself for the impact, but he actually said, yeah, let's do it. And the moment that we posted about the event, we ended up selling out in about four hours. So it was it was pretty eye-opening to see the value proposition being validated up front where people were feeling lonely, right? They wanted to feel connected. Well, oftentimes, because we're living in such metropolitan communities and cities, we think about, oh, how can we be lonely? We're around all these people all this time. Uh, but actually, in my opinion, I find that cities are places where millions of people are alone together. You know, sometimes being around others means that you feel more lonely. And this actually has a larger effect on younger adults. So studies have shown that millennials and Gen Zs suffer from loneliness much more in, in greater percentages than previous generations. I think British anthropologists established that, you know, the size of your brain is also related to how much social connectivity you have. And there's been really interesting neurological underpinnings associated with being started of social contact and connection. So some quick stats, 71% of millennial respondents in a survey recently said that they felt lonely and close to 80%, 79% of Gen Zs have also said the same, same thing. So when you think about it in hindsight, I think that we are a much more socially adept generation given that we have social media, we have new channels of connecting, of dating, of meeting, but it doesn't solve the problem that we've always had, which is we can live in cities and still feel socially isolated from one another. Yep. Especially when I was living in the city. I'm in the burbs now. Yeah. Where we, were you living in the city? I lived a year in Manhattan and then three in Astoria. In nice. Yeah. And I imagine that there are many times in, in New York City where I'm calling in from right now, where you've just felt kind of alone while being surrounded by other people, right? No, I, I think it's so interesting because especially like me, I'm a, I'm a millennial. It's love brunch. I feel like there's a, a statistic <laughs> somewhere out there about millennials loving brunch. <laughs> Probably. I love brunch. But yeah, I you feel so alone, but at the same time, aren't we like the most flakiest? Like, oh, like you want to like hang out? Mm, I don't want to. <laughs> like, yeah. And you know what? I think that might just be more about the quality versus quantity of experience. There's no shortage of quantity. You can go to brunch or you can go meet someone any time of the day. You can join a dating app and have someone to talk to in a minute. But I think it's really about focusing on the root of quality, right? And, and feeling like that experience is worth it. The problem with our generation, I feel like, is that we are very much a low to no participation generation. So it, it doesn't take much for us to flake. And yeah. 
also like when I was living in the city, it was such a given rule that if I'm in Queens, I like can't have friends in Brooklyn. That's like an hour commute. It's absolutely not happening. <laughs> That's right. You know, short, long distance is a thing. I'm from Los Angeles. So I used to tell people, you know, they live on the West side. I live on the East side. I don't think our friendship is going to happen. But in our pre-pre-conversation before this podcast, you had mentioned we are living in a loneliness pandemic. Do you have any more like interesting stories or how do you see this future of connection going even after COVID and how you had described it to me as like BC before COVID and then like (laughs) AC after COVID, I think. Amazing. Yes. So I have been referring it to among friends. I'm like, you know, life BC was so great, but life AC could also be. So BC is my shorthand for before COVID. You know, starting the supper club like we did in 2018, it was purely just a a restaurant concept that was like a moving pop-up, right? And during COVID, I was very lucky to meet my co-founder, Alwyn Tan, who is my technical lead. And he and I have been building a really interesting social discovery platform so that people can still continue to meet each other at events or at virtual events, but have a more connective experience with the tools and the features that we're building. In terms of the loneliness pandemic, I think we talk about it a lot as the problem that we want to solve. Because, you know, with my background as a venture capitalist, we talk, we often talk about like what matters to a VC. And some of the best products that were created today were designed with a really simple mantra. And I think about it all the time, but, you know, at some point when you're thinking about what you want to build, what you want to create, you want to make something that people want to do easier. So if there's a problem, there's usually a problem associated with it. But if people want to connect or people want to feel closer together, how do we make it easier for them? How do we build products that are, are able to offer a tech-enabled assistance to make something as elemental and time everlasting as connection? So when we talk about the loneliness pandemic, we think a lot about how we can solve a problem like being socially isolated. The World Health Organization actually released a really interesting stat earlier this year. When you are socially isolated, it reduces your life expectancy by more than a couple of years. It's essentially the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. That's a pretty, that's a pretty intense stat if you think about it, because, you know, we can try our best to be focused on wellness and health, eat the right things, not smoke, and maybe drink in moderation or not drink at all. But if we're not taking care of our mental health, we can actually have the same adverse effects, which has also led me to think more about why we do research into things like the blue zone. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept. Mm -hmm. Um, Blue zones are the areas of the world that have been highlighted because people there live the longest. So this includes the Aegean Islands in the the Kikladic area of Greece and includes the Okinawa Islands of Japan and also surprisingly a small suburb in California near where I grew up called Yorba Linda. And the interesting part about the Yorba Linda one is actually it is a very religious community there. So studies have shown that if you are more religiously or spiritually guided, you tend to live longer. This doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have more deeply held beliefs, but you have to either practice. So a lot of studies have reflected that church going kind of creates a simulated environment that produces a really healthy mental mindset because you have, you know, this network of social support an optimistic attitude, better self-control, and a sense of purpose in life. That's not necessarily always across the board what happens when you go to church, but it's the idea that you're congregating with a, with a like-minded community. 
in our opinion, we like to attribute what we learn from these studies as uh, longevity is derived not from religious dogma, but from compassion for others, you know, gratitude, things that are often associated with spirituality and religion. Since we, I guess, don't know, we can't predict the future of COVID. And when, you know, I guess, if anything's going to change with, will people feel more comfortable with a vaccine? Will people start to travel? There's so many unknowns. And with what your app and your social clubs, like, where do you see those going? Yeah, I mean, we talk about this a lot. And I've been doing studies about what a loneliness pandemic means, you know, because it's supposed to be a play on words. We're clearly very much so in a an actual pandemic, a viral one, and the one that has spread really quickly has impacted all of our lives, no matter where you live. And so with the loneliness pandemic can come the idea of a, a social recession. You know, it's very clear and easy to quantify an economic recession, but with an economic recession, we can talk about some slowdowns. We can talk about the adverse effects it will have on our GDP. But what happens with a social recession? It could be sort of an unraveling of our social connections the longer we go without human interaction. So I want to say that people may or may not struggle to feel okay in this time period. And I think it's truly okay to not feel good in a time where things are really crazy. You know, 2020 has been the year of hit or misses and one month after another, just these exploding bombs that I I think have really made this an interesting time. I was telling a friend earlier, you man, it's it's exhausting being a part of history. But in moving forward, I think that there's a lot of gratitude for what we didn't have, right? So understanding that, you know, there was a time where you could hug a friend without being heavyweighted with your conscience or that you could interact with someone spontaneously and have this interaction where you don't feel there's a guilt-free element because you're no longer worried about catching COVID. It is sort of the ultra minimalism of having all extraneous and frivolous things removed from life in terms of social contact for you to really truly value what matters. So I was saying to friends, you know, this is your opportunity in a pandemic to tell people, hey, I can't meet with you because of COVID, but it's really because of other reasons. And you will make the time and the space for the people that matter to you. And I think that that applies across the board of fewer but better. You know, we can focus on having quality relationships versus an abundance of them. I think that was partially the issue with things like dating apps because you had too many options at once. The volume was almost overwhelming at some point. So you weren't able to really invest in a deeper experience. Even thinking more about the ways that we millennials transact or hang out or socialize now, I think to say that deep friendships are becoming more rare is actually a pretty true statement. Mm-hmm. And with, I guess, the with your supper clubs and solo app, how do you see what you're working on adapting I mean, for us, you know, how do we create a product that is making something that people want to do easier? And I think people will always want to connect. found that our niche is in the intersection between spontaneous interactions and food. For whatever reason, sitting down for a meal with someone is a much more universal breaking of bread. And I want to say an icebreaker that it doesn't come with a cup of coffee. Maybe it comes with a drink, but you know, with everything, it does take time. For us, we're thinking more about how do we create this environment where we can help people meet each other better. Um, And for example, we've been running pilots with Soho House and with a friend of mine, his name is Oren, he's running 
these blind Cupid dinners where we're creating products and features that make it easier for people to find each other in the room. So for example, we have a dinner plan with him in Tel Aviv later this year where he is going to book out a home for the night. It will be with a private chef and everyone signing up for the event on our platform. They're creating profiles. And before they walk in the door, five minutes before the event starts, Oren will pair them with somebody from a, a matchmaking, a blind date standpoint, and they'll receive a text message to their phone saying, you know, um, hey, Nicole, Oren thinks you should meet Ben. Here's his profile. Go find him in the room. And if you think about it, that's not a complicated feature, but we thought of it one night because we said we should be creating features that help people become more interactive. You know, we're at a time where as generations move on and, and we have younger generations aging up, we're getting to see data about how Gen Zs are much more natively intuitive towards text features and to Snapchat than they are to real live interpersonal conversations. And that's a really interesting perspective to think about because you know they can be just as dynamic, just as intelligent, but maybe a little socially stunted because of either the lack of interactions, the, the methods that they're accustomed to, the frequency and the amount of time they spend talking in a different communication style than what you and I might be used to, right? So can we create features that will be more conducive to that, even by making small little nudges? You know, the Soho Works membership manager in West Hollywood, who we talked to for our pilot, loved the idea because he said that basically Solo is creating this concept where phones can make you a better human. Sometimes you just need a little nudge to say, hey, be a little brave today and go talk to someone in the room. And this applies for a networking mixer or for a dating blind dinner setup, because it, no matter what, I think we're intrigued at the thought of meeting others. Yeah, I'm a little old school. I kind of like to leave it up to fate. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want Oren to pair you with somebody for a, I mean, a- that'd be cool. I think that would be really cool because I did this, I did this event years and years and years ago. And it was, it was like some kind of experiential thing. And it was a group of people and you got all these like little questions and you broke out into groups. So I, I like that kind of stuff. And I think that they did custom kind of pairing thing ahead of time as well. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. It's like extra, it's just something extra that, you know, I don't have to to do the work and it's it's nice to kind of sometimes go in with oh I know something already about you yeah I've never met you it was actually really interesting from a use case perspective because we applied it to a mixer that we did it was a professional networking mixer at Soho Works which is an extension of Soho House and so what we did was we asked people to fill out their professions and also one thing they needed help with before they walked in the door to join the room And it was actually really interesting because we're able to provide more valuable connections up front by offering information that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you had spent an extended amount of time with someone. And so what happened when we connected two people who worked in the film industry was that one was looking for unscripted talent, diversity hires for a show he was piloting, and another one was a casting director. And so because we knew this information up front, we were able to pair them more seamlessly and offer them an experience where we said, hey, you, we didn't know that you two needed each other, but now you have this opportunity to connect. Another woman had listed she needed introductions to VCs on her survey form. So when she walked in the door, I said, hey, Brianna, so nice to meet you. You know, I used to work as an early stage VC investor. Do you need help connecting with other seed stage funds? Do you want me to help look at your deck? Let me know how I can be of assistance to you. 
And she really lit up because, you know, that's a conversation that doesn't happen when you first meet somebody right off the bat. It happens after you spend time getting to know someone mm-hmm. and really understanding what they're building, what they're excited about, and how you can help. That usually comes maybe like 40 minutes into a conversation where you're saying, you know, where can I provide value for you? Yeah, no, I love that. I do that at the end of my brunches. What's like your one ask? And then I'll like summarize it and send it to everyone just to recap afterwards. Amazing. Well, you can use solo for one of your brunches then because that way you don't have to summarize it. You know, they will summarize for you. And then link out. That'd be super easy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It would be interesting to create a new age Craigslist where we can help provide human classifieds for people to help each other. That's something that we're really looking forward to doing. It's on our list, on our roadmap of creating a bulletin board for people to reach out to each other on. I would like to go into your, just your founder journey. What has your experience and journey been in in founding and building a company? Yeah, it's really interesting that you asked that because I think that where you come from really informs your perspective where you're going, right? And so I spent a good part of uh, my early 20s looking at early stage companies. And a big part of what an investor looks for can change depending on what area and stage of investment that they're planning on doing, but always thinking more quantitatively about what metrics matter, what you're looking for and evaluating out of a founder and their idea versus, you know, how much passion is driving them. So as a founder now, I think a lot of my journey has been informed about understanding purpose and the mission values and never forgetting the North Star along the way. You know, we talked briefly about what it's like to to be in the venture world. And I might have mentioned this, but, you know, we followed a rubric at my fund. We were talking a lot about how do we evaluate these seven principles up front? It was technology, the team, traction, the timing of the market, the total addressable market, and also whether or not we could 10x the product or 10x this vertical to make it really interesting to add to this world. As a founder, I think more about how do we create a company that is both business aligned and geared towards scalability, but also one that creates value and purpose to the consumers of our product or those who might interact with our world. It's a really interesting perspective. And also, you know, having the legal background, I always try to make sure we're following the law, not as relevant as at this point right now because everything is shut down but from this holistic perspective i think that the founder journey is really interesting because it too is quite lonely but you're always thinking about perspectives you're always thinking about who is my customer who is my target market you know am i raising money who is my ideal investor who is strategic as a partner who can add value and and bring something interesting to the table for me to be able to scale and bring this product to light What is the problem that I'm solving? You know, going back to like, what are we creating that's making it easier for people to do what they want to do? And can we adequately solve it what we have now? So it's, I would call it sort of this juggling of different priorities. You're thinking about so many different stakeholders. You're thinking about so many different opportunities and directions that you can take your company, depending on how you want to pivot. But I would say that it's been such a wild and fulfilling ride because it's a journey that I I wouldn't want to do anything else in the meantime. You know, right now is a time for incredible growth and innovation because the world is so crazy that some of the best companies were actually born out of the last recession in 2010. And so now being able to say that we can ride some sort of wave is exciting, exhilarating, and anxiety-inducing, you know, scary, all of the above. 
And to get more into the venture world, something I have no idea about. <laughs> Can you walk us through that? I just know like there's different ways to get money, either from VCs, investors, <laughs> crowdfunding. Uh, there's different avenues to take. Can you go a little bit more into what that all means <laughs> for yeah. the venture world? What are investors specifically looking for? Absolutely. So, you know, feel free to jump in any time. It doesn't make any sense because this is definitely a complex world. And you kind of have to be drinking the Kool-Aid for quite a bit of time to really be, you know, really in it. But I think the idea is that every company needs some form of investment, right? Be it a founder's time, a team member's time, or also an investment in capital, an investment in trying to build some sort of product, a service, a location that will eventually generate profit. There are so many ways to, in order to build a company. Venture is a very specific formula meant for exponential growth. So you know, if, if you think that you can build the next Airbnb or the next Uber, these are all companies that require a lot of upfront capital investment in order to scale very quickly to offer, to address a, a huge market size. You know, sometimes when you're building companies that may have really healthy cash flows and still be profitable, but maybe grow at a slower pace, then we, we can refer to those as lifestyle businesses because they're not venture backable. So venture backable must have this proposition of having some extremely fast exponential scale of growth and oftentimes will require a strategic partner to get involved to help scale it to that level. But that doesn't necessarily apply to everyone, right? A ton of small businesses, be it if you wanted to open your own concept shop, an e-commerce store, not all of these things require venture investment and can often be done with smaller amounts of capital. You can raise it with debt, you know, going to a bank, getting a loan, or also securing a friends and family round where you can just borrow money from the, the people who believe in you, those around you, and you can often build a, a company with just that itself. So it's really dependent on what kind of company are you about to build? Is it tech enabled? What do the margins look like? You know, if you want to maintain control and own all of the equity, do you necessarily need to raise money with outside investors? Not necessarily, because you can accomplish it with just a loan instead, or maybe a convertible note that does not convert. There, it's, it's a dependent conversation on what you want to build. You know, I think where you want to take your company eventually. So if anyone listening to this podcast ever wants to chat with me, I'm always happy to connect. So with, let's say for solo app, are you specifically looking for investors? We're not looking currently. I think the goal right now is to build traction. You know, like we said, team, traction, timing, and technology. We need to make sure that we're solid on all fronts before we can raise and for us, we're really looking for someone who's strategically able to offer value. Having been in this world before, I find it much more rewarding to be on the operating side because as an investor, you have to see so many founders who are so passionate about their ideas. But the most you can do is fund them. You know, you can be somewhat involved from a portfolio company perspective and offer advice or connections, but you're primarily focused on deal flow and being able to make as many deals as possible to bring your fund as many as much of the return as possible. So for me, I think that, you know, it's been really enjoyable to be on this founding side to have an investment would require a really excellent strategic partner or investor who's able to offer some sort of intangible value beyond just the capital to help us get to the next level. You know, so we're not looking for investment. And I think that that's something we can explore in the future, but um, 
are, are very reserved and committed to making the right choices about. They often equate a fundraise or working with investors as a marriage. You know, there's a, there's a courting process. There is sort of this dance of this romance, this, the spin of the story, the telling of the future, the promise of the future, and then the consummation of that connection in, in, a, in a raise or in a formalized paper. And then you're often with that investor or that maintaining that relationship for years at a time for life, maybe, who knows? Some of the investor company relationships that I know have done extremely well last longer than the average marriage in America. So they're, they're, some, they're one and the same. I think that to say that it's a two-way conversation is very important. And is it that investors are specifically looking at just the numbers and capital <laughs> margins? Well, every investment fund has a, a thesis, right? So some of them can say, we are totally focused on consumer. Some of them can say we're totally focused on enterprise. Some of them can say we are exclusively focused on a generation of people, a deep vertical of healthcare or biotech. So depending on what they've identified as their parameters and that investment thesis, they can invest accordingly, no matter what the return might be, because it's, it's different per industry, per vertical. So I think it's just really thinking more as a founder, what do you want to build? And what do you believe in? And who's an investor who also is deeply aligned and deeply invested in that category so that that, you know, that relationship can just blossom. Kind of like dating, right? You know, some people like cats, some people like dogs. They don't necessarily pair well together. So you can really, you have to really sort to find the right person, the right match. And you had mentioned that you do have a support tribe of other entrepreneurs and you guys trade information. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, has there been any really helpful information or advice that you've received or common challenges you tend to see entrepreneurs face? Yeah, you know, I think that the heart of Solo was always to figure out if we could build a community of like-minded individuals. And the more niche that we got, the more success we would have because you would, people would have more in common, right? So I think we liken these conversations. I like how you call it a support tribe, by the way, where we might have to inherit that. But we've called these founder calls, which are just these Zoom rooms I've been hosting in COVID, a really interesting watering hole for consumer-focused company founders to trade information and offer support to one another. We've found that people have really enjoyed it because the information that gets traded is hyper relevant, much like a, a sub thread, a subreddit, you know, thread that gets incre increasingly more niche and more detailed as it, as it goes on. So we generally do about 10 founders of consumer facing companies, we all get on a zoom call. And usually I know a little bit about every company. So I'm able to offer a one line pitch when they when we get on the call. Sometimes we don't, and we just dive straight into it. So for example, when we get on a call, I might ask Sean, who's a good friend of mine, hey, Sean, you just launched your creative studio, CS Collective. How did you launch and how did you get Nike and Foot Locker as your client, you know, right out the door? And he'll tell the story about how he can build a narrative through the images and the graphics that they're creating, weaving it into different products and merchandise where they actually have a licensing agreement with all of their, their vendors that they're working with. And then someone will kind of interject in the conversation and be like, hey, that's so cool. I'm working on something similar in the fashion industry. How can we connect? And then they will break out into a breakout room for seven minutes where they'll talk to each other about the different things that they really enjoy 
or that they might have shared in common or questions that might they might want to share with each other. So it's been really interesting. We've had venture-backed companies, non-venture-backed company founders all join in on the call. I think they really enjoy feeling like it's a place where they can be recognized for what they do because the founder journey is very lonely. Um, as much as everyone can be ambitious and excited about what they're building and what they're producing, there's often a time where you are surrounded by people who may not understand the realm, you know, until the product has come into fruition, until the software is completed, or until, you know, if you've achieved whatever hurdle it is that can be established as your metric of success. The one thing that I actually talked to a lot of founders on on that call is having a thick skin. Really interesting. I think you have to be slightly a psychopath to start a company because you have to be able to enjoy or at least bear being rejected over and over again. So you have to learn when to stay true to yourself, but also hear the feedback that's being given to you. Sometimes you can be told, hey, that's just not a great idea. Why are you spending your time on this? And you can be told, wow, that's an awesome idea. You should follow this direction and take it A, B, and C. It's quite a lonely journey. And so I think that along the way, when you build a thick skin for people who tell you no, you have to learn when you're going to hear a yes. Every entrepreneur podcast you listen to, you can hear a successful founder's story and listen to them talk about how they were consistently told no over and over again, maybe 20, 30, 50 times until one person said yes, or one investor said yes. And that was the, the ticket that, you know, really took them to the next level. It's difficult. You know, we, we talk about that a lot and it's something, it's a journey that you need to be really mindful of. Other things we've talked about are the challenges of getting to launch, you know, starting a company. Sometimes we trade accountant information, lawyers, whether or not to invest in paid marketing this week, what we think about the new Facebook algorithm, Instagram algorithm, whether or not using press or paid is actually an investment for something with a time where social media effectiveness and utilization can be seen as less effective as, as when it first launched a couple of years ago or when you know activity engagement were at all-time highs. I would say that's pretty much it, except there's also one thing we talked about on our last call. Asher, a friend of mine who's running a venture studio, has said that he has always struggled to let go of ideas he loved. But as someone who's launched maybe six companies now, he has said that his goal whenever he creates a company is to move really fast and to not be tied to your emotions or like not, as they say in journalism, kill your darlings. A lot of times you can build a product or be obsessive over every small detail and every little color. But, you know, at some point you just need to get the product out. Mm-hmm. So they spent maybe too long picking the shade of yellow for this mask company that he launched in COVID. But the moment that they were like, hey, you know what, let's just pick a color, figure out the hex code and keep going. And the moment that they launched, they were having crazy mask orders come in so that the volume was, you know, way more than they were expecting. And they ran out and they sold out of their inventory a couple of times. But to, to me, he was telling me more about how it was difficult to kind of like Focus on every detail in the moment when it was important to meet the timing and the demand of the product. So with with software and with technology, we talk a lot about how if your MVP is not embarrassing or uh, is not buggy or doesn't have, you know, a lot of weird glitches in when it first launches, you didn't move fast enough because you spend too long obsessing over the button detail, the, the UI or the UX, 
and you're obsessing over minor things when you just need to test and validate whether or not a product works or it's meeting a need, you're, I think, jeopardizing your opportunity to capitalize on a, on a specific point of time. I'm curious, like, do, is, there, is there a lot of, I guess I'll just ask, is there a lot of women in this, this you know, support group? I feel like I had another woman on the podcast and she yeah, did the whole thing of like Shark Tank in that world. And she's like, there is not a lot of female, you know, entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, what does that look like? Specifically with the venture world or in general, I think we're going through an interesting time where the woman entrepreneur is is celebrated, right? And we're being encouraged to be female owned or to be female founded. In terms of venture, it's a pretty dismal number considering that, you know, 90% of venture capital investment goes to a male entrepreneur. You know, I don't know if you saw recently, but Quibi, which is a, was that short form video content that had about 1.4 billion in, invested in creating a small mobile geared network of, of content programming recently caved and went under, but actually Quibi has, re, has received more in venture capital funding than all female entrepreneurs, hmm. which is pretty crazy, right? And that 1.4 billion just for one company versus a a pool of female founders. So it's an uphill battle because I think that there is a lot to be learned from understanding where there might be gender stereotypes or where there might be gender bias in creating a company. Um, and that just makes female founders that much stronger. You know, I'm much more excited to, not much more excited, you know, I have many guy friends, many guy founders that I like to talk to, but I think I'm excited to relate to female founders who are doing the same thing because it requires a really thick skin um, and it requires a lot of bravery and courage to do something like start a company because you have to take a risk that not many people might be willing to do in order to have this reward or have this return. So I think that we're going through an interesting time where women founders can be seen as celebrated and as welcome, whereas I think it was an uphill, much more of an uphill battle, maybe even 10 years prior. Before we go into some fun wrap-up questions... Is there any other surprising things you've learned about being an entrepreneur in your journey? Any other tips, learnings you can share with the listeners? I think the one thing I've learned is to be incredibly disciplined with time management. I don't know if this is my type A side or I don't know if this is the New York side or the founder side, but you know, when you are working on all things at all times of the day, learning to prioritize your time is actually really important. You know, and I, I find that now my calendar is just blown up with all these small calendar invites here and scheduled things there because being able to maximize your time and understand what brings value and value can be subjective to mean so many different things is important. So, you know, I actually schedule a strategy hour on Sundays. I don't tell many people this, so now it's making its podcast debut. But the strategy hour on Sundays is really more about aligning myself from last week um, envisioning the week ahead and understanding, you know, kind of taking a step back and understanding what did I want to accomplish? Should I overachieve my goals? Did I underachieve? And how can I re-engineer this week to be better than the next? You know, I think from a life mantra standpoint, I'm always thinking more about self-improvement and understanding that humans are just predictably imperfect is one reality we have to be attuned to but also understanding, you know, how do we make small, pivotal, just gentle improvements to increase our value over time or increase our productivity is something that's always top of mind. 
when you're building a company and you feel like your time is so short, how do you budget in, you know, with your time capital? How do you budget in that one hour with a friend who will really make you happy or, or maybe relax or give you that element of self-care that's important to you, but also understanding how to say no to things and being more militant about how you spend your work days just so you can get everything you need to get done, done quickly. All right, cool. And for fun wrap-up questions, we're going to talk about brunch. Let's do it. (laughs) You love brunch. I love brunch. Where should we go? What is your all-time favorite brunch meal, brunch spot, anything brunch? It was hard to say. I'm going to be, I'm going to make a confession. Actually, my favorite meal of the day is dinner. That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) You disagree? No. Yeah. I like brunch because it's the best of both worlds. It's breakfast and lunch. That's amazing because I actually think dinner is the best of all the worlds. You know, breakfast and lunch are the warm-ups and the starters to the dinner, which is the main entree uh, of the day. But I, I still, you know, brunch is amazing. But I, I would say given the choice, you know, dinner's also pretty top up, pretty high top shelf up there. Favorite brunch spot. I think that, um, you know, having a morning coffee at Rose Cafe in Dover Street Market in New York is great. La Mercerie here in Soho is also awesome. Really amazing brunch. But lately in COVID, none of these options have really been available to me. And so I was joking with my co-founder on the phone earlier that I think my favorite brunch is Sundays for our solo coffee. We have a feature now where we build a sub-product in quarantine to help people connect. So you can buy a bag of coffee, a phone number will be taped to it. And so you will call this number at 10 a.m. on Sundays and um, you will have a conversation with somebody. But usually that conversation is accompanied with food, brunch, a conversation about what we're eating for the day. We've been beta testing it for the last couple of weeks. So that has been my favorite brunch of the moment because it's actually a time where I can talk to somebody while I'm eating my brunch and having a, a social experience, even though we're all kind of stuck at home, you know, quarantined for COVID. Oh, I love that. I also had like a friend, I think virtually, like they're a couple, their friends were a couple, and then they like blindly each like swapped and had them like Uber order for each other and then did a Zoom so call. Cool. <laughs> so cool. That was cool. Yeah. And I think that they're, these are sort of tricks and hacks in order to have a social experience while we're all supposed to be at home and having none. But I treasure the Sunday brunch call. We call it solo coffee. I treasure that call on on Sundays because it's a remnant, not quite the same, but a simulation of of what a brunch would have been like BC. What do you like? Savory, sweet, ex-Benedict, French toast? Oh, all (laughs) of the above. I think from the I'm, I'm definitely more of a savory person. So um, having, you know, scrambled eggs in the morning, with some smoked salmon, it's a great option. I'm Taiwanese. So there are actually a lot of really specialty Taiwanese brunch items that you can have. Specific types of congees. They have like a turnip tart. That's actually really good. And a lot of other small things you can get street food wise in Taiwan on a Sunday morning. So it's a big part of my culture that I really enjoy. We should get some Taiwanese brunch sometime. Oh, I love that. Is there a, a spot you recommend in the city? Yeah. Where? Follow up. So in LA, there's a place called Pine and Crane. That one's really amazing. And there's a place in the West Village here called the Tay Company. 
which is mm. actually a tea house, but they offer a lot of um, Taiwanese specialty foods. Oh, nice. I feel yeah. a little bit removed. Are you right? The burbs. <laughs> we'll see you in the West Village. We'll, we'll link up. Awesome. I love the West Village. Since this is the Brunch and Learn podcast, we talked about brunch. We learned a lot today. But what is something that you learned this week? And it could be totally random. Well, we could talk about technical because I was learning a lot about servers earlier today. But I think uh, one thing I was reading, I'm thinking a lot about connection and connected experiences. Um, and I'm a big fan of Esther Perel. So she's a love psychologist. I don't know if you've read some of her books. She has this concept called the erotic blueprint. And so actually she was talking more about how the first two, three years of your life are very pivotal in terms of the way you love. And so if you can think back about your, you know, where you came from, your experiences growing up as a young child, that actually really informs the way that you are able to love, communicate, and your attachment style to others. Um, I find that incredibly interesting because we are truly like plants, right? You know, the environment that we get fostered in, uh, the, the resources and the nourishment that we get at an early seedling stage can really inform the ways that we grow in this direction and that sideways straight. This erotic blueprint of who we are as humans can get embedded and, and locked in very early and at a young age. So I think that that goes to show where, you know, at the beginning of your life is arguably the most important because it's this blueprint for how you transact and how you are shaped into the world thereafter. It's cool. Someone had said some, I can't even remember. Someone told me about some kind of quiz thing or some book and it's something similar about like a bunch of questions like that. And then like, like gift giving. Yeah. And like, if you never really like cared about gifts and you're not likely to like care about giving gifts and like, <laughs> I think it's there's so the Esther's book is called Mating in Captivity, sort of the idea between humans being animals and what does that mean in, in terms of how we how we move and how we interact in this world. And I think you're referring to the five love languages. Maybe. Yeah. And so those are five different communication styles of love. One being gifts, like you mentioned, quality time, words of affirmation, acts of service, and physical touch. Those are all ways that we can show our affection for others. And depending on how we were raised, like you said, you know, we might be more predisposition to do one or the other. Yeah, that sounds about right. I couldn't remember what it was. Someone had just told me about it. No, <laughs> you knew what it was. I, I told you I'm an aspiring uh, consumer <laughs> psychologist. So I'm deeply interested in understanding how humans work from top to bottom. That's so cool. And then finally, how can people find you on the internet? How can people say hi? Yeah, I mean, we'd love if people could come talk to us um, on the Solo Club Instagram. So we're actually solo underscore club. You can find us there. Um, if you're looking for my personal Instagram, it's Elaine underscore TC. And you can find us on soloclub.app. You, if you are emailing some email on that page, I think it will come to me at some point. So uh, if anyone wants to talk about any of the things that we've chatted about today, I'm more than happy to start the conversation and get the ball rolling. Hey friends, virtual hugs for completing another episode of the Brunch and Learn podcast. Did you learn something new this episode? I sure did. If you're loving the podcast, don't shy away from showing your love. Consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts 
And if you want to hear more guests and episodes, head over to our website at womenwhobrunch.com for episodes, recipes, blog posts, updates on events, and much more. See you guys soon.